Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and also on other community radio stations like KCEI. Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I would like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you so much, Walter Parks, for everything you do and all those songs you write. So if anyone out there listening is interested in Walter's music, WalterParks.com is a great place to, to look. If you'd like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. JamesNave.com is my website. You can send an email through that website. If you like, I'd love to hear from you. What's your story? Where are you? What are you up to? And I'd like to thank Davine Dial for all the good work she does at WPVM-FM. Thank you, Davine, for holding holding the community radio station in Asheville together and allowing us to have a platform to broadcast all over the world. And we really, really do appreciate it. And as many of you know, if you've listened to this show, you know that I have all kinds of people on the show, people that I sometimes have known for many years and other people I, I've maybe never met or I've met on Zoom and I'm just getting to know. So today I have such a guest. His name is Poetic Prez, going by Prez, is a poet. And the reason I have invited him on the show is he's a spoken word artist, a page poet. He's a thinker. He is curious about cultural events in the world, all over the world, especially here in the States. Prez, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thanks, Navi. So I would like to begin this conversation by just asking you to reflect on why you have chosen poetry as your your art form. Um, I'm from Queens, New York, originally. Growing up, I have always expressed myself through the written word. You know, English was always a subject I, I leaned on for expression. Over the years, I went from, you know, writing paragraphs for assignments to writing creative stories to uh, really thoughtful birthday cards and things like that to to then journaling and and that led to writing poetry that I thought was worth sharing. I've been writing poetry for the last twelve years now. Seriously, I've really recently started performing more, you know, in live and sharing that art for the last year and a half now. You know, it's it's been a journey, and I think I, I've chosen poetry or or spoken word specifically because I think stories are how we connect with each other. And performance poetry really captures and, and can transport you to a moment. And I, I think this this life is all about connection. Everything is connected and, and energy is always shared. So I'm very careful about how I craft my pieces. I'm a, I'm a selfish writer, so I write for myself, but at the same time, this needs to be shared. Well, when you say you started writing poetry 10 years ago and you also said that you'd been writing all along, how did you know you had stepped over the line into poetry? So I think I knew I stepped over the line when there was more cadence to what I was writing. It wasn't, it wasn't just a story. It was a texture to it with the cadence. Think about, you know, journaling as a summation of how you're feeling in that moment, right? But I think of poetry is more of like a, a picture, a painting, a snapshot, and a story, a particular portion of a moment 
explored, it's divulged, it's, it's said in a way that sticks, you know? So, I mean, even if you don't remember the entire line, how, how you feel, where I was able to transport you. I think I started writing poems and, and birthday cards. Like I was saying, I think, you know, birthday cards, I would I'd really, you know, get as vulnerable as I could and really let somebody, you know, mostly my mother at the time, right? You know, and my sister, letting them know how much I cared about them and how much I thought of them, giving them their flowers, so to speak, on, on their birthday. I realized it went from just journaling and stories to poetry when I, I felt a certain timelessness. Or, you know, I mean, yeah, so who knows, right? I could have been all wrong, but um, it had a, a different texture than just a, a, a paragraph put together, you know, nice and, and packaged. And so you said you are very careful when you write your work and put your poems together. What do you mean by very careful? How does that express itself in your work and in your even in your thinking, the carefulness? The carefulness comes from being thoughtful, right? I guess what I mean, careful, I mean, thoughtful about what I am trying to convey. You know, um, who's speaking? Who might this message be for? You know, I, I'm, I'm conscious of those of those attributes as I'm crafting my work, because if I'm going to share specifically your work, I'm going to share. I want to make sure that there are no questions. You know, while some things can be left open to interpretation, I think oftentimes with poetry, you know, we have, there's a point to what we're trying to get across. It's sometimes persuasive. It, it's sometimes, you know, just this abstract and, and we want people to go different places with it. And we want people to feel different things. That's really the carefulness. It's, it's in crafting something that can be digestible, but hearty, savory. And do you have a goal in mind in respect to your content, or do you meander around in different categories? And I'm asking that question because I tend to just be like the zebra in the field. I'll go over <laughs> to this corner, and then I'm over here in this corner. And and I'm, I love to play with language, but I don't have a, a focus in mind in terms of the content that, that I'm generating, whereas some poets will write about work. Some poets will write about family. Some poets will write about traveling the world. Of course, you and I got to know each other in this workshop that we're both in called the Imaginative Storm Writer Training. And I've heard your work and you tend to wander around in the best creative way possible. You explore one category and then another category. You do it in 10 minutes and then you present it. So would you say you more explore categories or do you get focused and specific on on one idea? Yes, I would say I'm exploring categories, especially with the with the imaginative storm course and in, in the circle we've we've have. I think, you know, the questions, the prompts have expanded my my thinking about my work and, and what I can write about, the array of things that you can you can divulge on is is, you know, they're endless, right? So but I do think that I, I come from originally a place of, of activism. I think I write from a sense of speaking on topics that we would most times ignore or feel uncomfortable. Complex topics, easily digestible, chewable, you know? So from a sense that people can have the conversation or just take in the information and decide how they feel about it, right? So I think I write from, from that place. It's more family oriented sometimes. It's more, um, it's oriented in, in, in social justice. I, I don't have as much as much fun really recently with writing because there are so many reminders of the injustices going around. I feel um, obligated to speak on it because there's so many people speaking on it, but 
are, are their messages getting through to the people who it matters to? Are, are people feeling spoken for? You know, I guess it, it's, it's a process, right? I think I write from, from different places depending on how I'm feeling. Now, and the idea of speaking for a group of people who to be spoken for, maybe because they don't write. I mean, there's so many people don't write. So yeah. the people who choose to approach the world poetically naturally are going to represent a fair number of folks who who do other things in life. Exactly. And so there's speaking for the group. And then there's also speaking to a, another group or a larger group or, or both groups at the same time. So when you think about speaking to a group, what do you think about when you craft your work and how do you craft your work so that it connects with the harder issues yet still can land on the ears that may not have been exposed to it as deeply as, as you have, or has given it as much thought as you have? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I do it successfully, right? I think um, that that all depends on who's listening and, and how closely they're listening. Uh, which is why I try to choose my words carefully, right? I try to think about examples that most people can relate to or identify with, feelings of of loneliness, helplessness, of empowerment, feelings of great pride, right? I think these are themes that we all feel as people. So I try to connect those universal emotions to (laughs) stories that may otherwise not be explicitly seen. And I know you've told me and I've learned that you have spent a good deal of your time as a page poet. And for those of you listening, a page poet, what that really means is the poet writes most of the work on the page and maybe reads it aloud at home to make sure that it sounds okay. And then it uh, publishes it. But now you're moving toward the performance side of poetry as well. What's drawing you to performance poetry? Do you have a background in performance or are you just interested in letting your voice be heard? And after you explain that a little bit, maybe you could read a piece for us. My senior year in high school, I had the confidence enough to be like, all right, like I like acting. I love movies. I think it's awesome to really get into another character's head. I consider myself an empath. Poetry is how I release that. And I think actors, lesbians are people who can really chameleon their way into a conscious and and show you where they were or show you where that character is and, and what they feel. I think for me, I didn't think acting was going to pay the bills. You know, being in New York or L.A., everybody wants to be an actor, right? Everybody's a waitress and, and trying to be an actor, you know? So, you know, poetry is a way to perform um, my own work. I can write a play. I can write a screenplay. I can write a, a, an episode of something or a story. So, you know, why not perform small snippets of my own work and how I think that should sound, how I think it should feel. That is what, what spurred me to, to trying my hand at performance poetry. I think I have a decent voice and, and having some leadership opportunities throughout my life. I, I see how my, my people react to my voice. So I figured pairing the two might be a good idea. So the slam I'm going to do, this is the piece I'll be performing for those listening that don't know what slam is. It is performance poetry and a competition style. So uh, a group of poets have a certain time limit that they have to get a poem done. It doesn't matter the topic, but um, they have to get it done in this certain amount of time. It's ranked by the 10th decimal point too. So it could be a 9.9. It could be a, a 8.3, right? So this is the dynamic and their judges and, and there's a whole thing. So I'm going to be doing the slam where I'm only getting one poem. It's going to be five of us and we all get one poem. So it's kind of like a knockout round. So 
this is the poem that I'll be performing. It's called Hashtag. I know my name isn't too long for a hashtag or a toe tag or a name tag, you know. Watch your back, hashtag Rayshard Brooks. Stay woke, hashtag Breonna Taylor. Don't be childish, hashtag Tamir Rice. You better run, boy, hashtag Ahmaud Arbery. Keep your voice down, hashtag George Floyd. Hang in there, hashtag Sandra Bland. I mean, damn, to name a few, you would think that for the effort it takes to be black and breathing that we would pass out before leaving the house from exhaustion of thought, assessing the day's activities and how they could lead to unfortunate ends like bird watching lemonade stand and shit grocery shopping could end in your tax dollars being used to settle wrongful death suits mothers unnaturally burying the children they raise and sacrifice their bodies for to bring into this world having them being reduced to casket sharp grandmothers shouting be safe baby and meaning it not as a request, but saying it as she were casting a spell, petitioning the spirits of our ancestors to intervene because every black body that makes her the matriarch is at risk. Her lineage can be snuffed out in the same breath it takes to blow out her birthday candles, fathers. Define the odds to pass down lessons of survival. Make eye contact, show your hands. Don't use your mouth too much and comply because it could mean your life. See, there's no one coming to save you, so do all you can to stay alive. I know my name isn't too long for a name tag because I am the only black person in this corporate orientation. Earned my first working a retail plantation, picking cotton in stock rooms yielded no dividend yet even then. Making it stack was the goal, but see now I'm the voice, the snapshot of black life, the check box on diversity, check in at career fair, but was still looked over for promotion, given feedback that didn't match my work ethic was called articulate as if that was a compliment and great feat to achieve with someone with lips as big as mine. I'm the only son of a woman tired of worrying if I'll make it home safe from her house or the party or police Custody, see, I know my people will remember my name if I go, because our names don't go with us. They live on shirts and cardboard, on the lips of our loved ones in the yellow paint tattooed in the street. Footage or not, the cycle repeats. Systemic racism was carefully sewn into the very fabric of American culture the same way my ancestors sold our family history into quilts in a country where glass windows can protect things more efficiently than our words can protect our black bodies. The language of the day is a 400 year old scream as a brick breaks through the safety glass of white privilege. If history is bound to repeat itself, then what do we have to look forward to? A hashtag? So in that piece, that piece is loaded with imagery it's loaded with messages, characters, settings. It's a three-minute movie. All <laughs> put in, you know, it's it's wonderful. So when you were composing that piece, how did you go about putting all of those elements together? What kind of process did you use? Because I ask these questions often to poets, because people who are listening to the show out there. Maybe they want to do something similar to that. And, of course, when you hear a completed piece like the one you just offered us, it is complicated. There's a yeah. lot of stuff going on there, a lot of emotional stuff, 
on it goes. How do you construct that so that you are able to get all those elements in there in a way that has narrative availability and narrative sense? So I, I start with like a, a framework, right? So the day I wrote this piece of the evening, um, Rayshawn Brooks, the gentleman that was killed in the Wendy's parking lot, it was that day. And this was like right after George Floyd, right after Breonna Taylor, right after Ahmaud Arbery. So the 2020, the year of right last year, around this time, very time right now, we were just in the throes of protests and more black death, more killing and more police violence. The question was, what is left? So I boiled a lot of feelings down to what is left? It was a hashtag. It was another hashtag. So I used that as the catalyst to this piece. You know, so I go down a list of a few names that people may recognize that have recently happened. And I add the imagery of, don't be childish, Tamir Rice, he was 11 years old, right? Stay woke, Breonna Taylor, right? She was asleep in her bed. Uh, Keep your voice down, right? You better run, right? Ahmaud Abi was running through his neighborhood. So I use point, touch points that people will be able to connect to easily given with the context and overlay of the, the subject being the hashtag, what that hashtag can mean and how, how frequently it's gonna be used. And then I went into, again, things that are relatable. Mothers, grandmothers, fathers, we all have those, right? So what are they saying? How are they feeling, right? Mothers are naturally burying their children, right? That they risk their bodies for to bring into the world. And my grandmother was always saying, you know, be safe. They're charging us for being safe. We can all relate to that. But what does that really mean for a Black body? What does that really mean for a Black grandmother? The bodies in her family who make her the matriarch, who make her the head of the family, are at risk. Who, who does she call? What's left, right? So going back to a question, going back to relatable touch points and, and you know, continuing to craft it. So I like threes, right? I think to, I like to write in threes. So three examples for everything. So it was a hashtag, a toe tag, a name tag. So the hashtag was the overlay of the poem. And the toe tag I touched on with how our family wished that we survive. And then the name tag I went into, you know, what that what that feels like. I mean, because, you know, I don't know if you've ever worked in retail or service industry, but that's that's tough work. Right. People are doing grueling hours and feeling like they're slaving, you know. And I mean, I've, I've heard people of all different nationalities say, you know, we're slaving away today. You know, we got eight hours you know, on the floor, on our feet in cotton. I just thought that was clever because I worked in Express, you know, so I was always picking up and folding cotton sweaters in, in the stock room. Right? I thought about what that means as far as the stock market and, and how that yielded no dividends. The contrast to now being in corporate America and noticing there's very few people that look like me and what that feels like and how that how I navigate that and, and bring it home to what we're going through. The riots, I, so the line about um, how glass windows can protect things more efficiently than our words can protect our black bodies was about the riots. We are more concerned with people damaging, and not that there's right, right, but they're, they're damaging things that can be replaced when these people can't. And liking that to these things are more sacred, more, more protected, more safe than us. I go through a lot of points of how does this tie into the theme but what is relatable to everyone? What does everyone have? And in this poem, it was about what what is left. I think that's an incredible and compelling exploration to 
think of folding the cotton shirts, the cotton t-shirts, the cotton jeans, whatever is made of cotton in all of these retail stores. And then, of course, you think of all of the people all over the world in factories making yeah. these things. Right. And how many millions of people are doing that kind of work with cotton and then referencing it back to the days in the 1800s people picked cotton and it was a it was the same kind of redundancy yeah over and over again so people are still picking and folding cotton all all over the world yeah that's i think the job of the poet is to come up with something like that (laughs) <laughs> I, I think that's that, that's really that, that's really a good good offering, and and you mentioned your relationship with the corporate world, and I know that you've told me a, a bit about your day job, which mm-hmm. is a, a day job that you have because you have a family, you have a child on the way, and mm-hmm. so you're juggling the work of the poet with the work of somebody who is in the corporate environment. So tell us a bit about your corporate work and how you fit into that and how it informs your your poetry and, and, and what you do corporately to make all sure. this happen. Sure, so I mean, my, my corporate life is, is very successful one. It's a meritocracy, but it's also politics, right? So it's about relationships. I think life is really about relationships. If anything I've learned is that, you know, you sink or swim by who one sometimes who you're connected to and what you're able to produce consistently. It's a delicate balance. That's the bigger check, right? And so I have to over-index and in making sure that I'm consistently committing to excellence and 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 achieving and, and engagement. You know, a lot of my job is underwriting different companies. And I have to understand the inner workings of companies so that I can assign what level of risk we're willing to take on, right? So as an underwriter, I'm thinking about how do I price for this? What exposures do you have? You know, what kind of things can, what's the worst thing that could happen? And how have you thought about controlling that? So risk selection is constantly going on in my mind, which is funny because I think about my upbringing, risk selection is always a part of how I navigate, right? So a lot of my work in the corporate space has not just been on the technical side and in the business side, but also the diversity and inclusion space. You know, I talked about being the only one in my orientation and that was real, right? So my charge the last eight years in this space has been bringing as many people that look like me who are qualified and can be great at these type of jobs into insurance, exposing them to an industry they otherwise would never be exposed to because it is a very much so a, a kind of who, who you know and how you know somebody that's in the industry and they tell you about a gig and, and you get it and it pays well and, and you have a pretty decent work-life balance. Having that security gave me more freedom to think about what I really want to do. I'm climbing the corporate ladder, so to speak. I'm in leadership programs. I'm a leader already and advocate for my region and and I'm hitting my numbers, right? But that stuff doesn't necessarily make me feel good, right? So what makes me feel good is paying it forward. And I do that by introducing people to mentors or letting them know about a posting and stuff like that or prepping for interviews. I, I love this type of work. Like it's always about the question, right? Like if you can ask good questions, you can extract so much information from somebody. And sometimes if you have a good handle on your story, which kind of goes into being an artist, right? Who are you? Who are you speaking? What, what perspective are you speaking from? How well do you know your story? You can have more time to ask more probing questions for you to understand if you really want this opportunity or not. So 
that's the way I've kind of been able to mesh the two roles. I've, I've taken my ability to interact with people easily from just being myself and being an artist and wanting to connect with people into my relationships. And that's boded well. And I've been able to, you know, write a lot of business and, and have success there. And in turn, I've tried to bring in people who otherwise wouldn't know about an industry that I think is one of the best kept secrets in the world, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I need to make more space for my artistry, but it's tough because I think I'm, I'm, I'm thinking in my practical brain and not my creative brain enough. So it's, it's interesting when you say underwriting, I nod my head and think, oh, I know what underwriting is. But Prez, I actually don't know what an underwriter does. Best I can say is you explore aspects of a business that your insurance company is going to insure and it's like an investigation. You go into the elements of the business to try to figure out what the, the risk is. Now, I'm starting to think this sounds like a, a poet writing a poem. <laughs> Am I very far off here? No, you're not. Documentation isn't as poetic as, as you made it sound just now. But I mean, it is about getting deeper and, and probing and, and, and problem solving and finding. So, you know, my biggest thing is I consider myself a risk management consultant, right? So I'm always thinking about, I want you to be able to do what you do with the best. I am here to think about where there are aspects of your business that may cost you money so that you are not able to do what you do the best at full steam. If you have occupational disease hazard because there's too much noise in a factory, you got people who can't work, right? Because they, they can't hear and you're paying claims, right? So you're, you're losing money, you're losing workers, or you have a task that is a repetitive motion where they're lifting boxes and they strain in their back. You know, now you have to train someone new and have to figure out a different way to do that. So I think about, and I have to dig into ways people have control of their exposures. You know, I craft a narrative in the same way. And underwriting really comes from, um, there are slips. So there's like a contract, right? So you and I, let's say I'm coming over to, take away or take down your bookshelf behind you. And you say, all right, we have an agreement. If I don't do the work, we have somebody who signs under our contract and says, I'll insure you if they don't complete the job. Just, just make it as simple as possible. Oh, so that's what it is. You're in a sense, watching the back of a client. Exactly. So it's, it's risk transfer, you know, so you won't have to bring back your $80 million building because you'll transfer that risk for me to for a price. Uh, you, you'll pay a hundred thousand. And if, if your $80 million building goes up in smoke, I'll make sure that you have the money to repair it and you'll pay your deductible and that's how it works. <laughs> Amazing. So you said it's a well-kept secret or a best-kept secret? Yeah, best-kept secret. What do, you, what do you mean by that? So, I mean, work-life balance, right? So, I mean, in the insurance industry, you know, it's uh, I've been working from home for a year now, right? But before that, I had worked from home two days. You know, I'll go into the office and, and it's cubicle life. But I've gone to so many games in Madison Square Garden, and so many dinners, you know, you expense, you know, dinners and stuff like that. So it's a very social relationship oriented industry. That's what's the best kept secret, right? It's because if you have a group of people who are already friends and they're just on different sides of the table, you can do business with their friends and have a company pay for you to foster and nurture a relationship you already have. That's what life is all about. We're here to connect with each other. In, in some weird way, I think insurance has been my, my way of meeting different types of people and being able to connect with them and get paid to get to know folks. And do you do most of your business in New Jersey or in New York City or just the both? Yeah, both New York and, and New Jersey. And where do you live in New Jersey? So I'm in uh, Plainfield, New Jersey. 
So you can go into the city and do the work and yep. your office is in Plainfield? It's in uh, Midtown, actually. 33rd Street, close to train and stuff like that. So in normal conditions, we'd be in the city during the week, going to dinners and happy hours and stuff like that and connecting and, and stuff like that. So, Prez, on that note, I'd like to pause for just a minute for station identification and say to everyone out there, you're listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, FM, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. WalterParks.com if you're interested in more of Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. The work you do allows us to have our global reach, so thank you ever so much for that. If you'd like to make contact with me, you can email me through my website, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, and I would love to hear from you. And before I get back to my conversation with Poetic Prez, otherwise known as Prez, I just wanted to let you know I have a little book titled How to Read for an Audience. So if you are interested in learning more about how you can read for an audience, especially now that shows are beginning to happen again, live shows, so you may have an opportunity to get in front of a mic with an audience. Who knows? The book is titled How to Read for an Audience, and you can find that information at twice5miles.com. Perhaps we'll see you on that stage. So now, Perez, let's get back to talking about balancing our work life with our artistic life. A lot of people think it's not possible to balance work life with artistic life. They think, oh, if I'm going to be a poet or a whatever kind of artist they choose to be, I have to give it all up. I have to give up my family. I have to go out and on the road like Jack Kerouac, you know, 40 <laughs> years ago, bang around in the back of a pickup truck, which is yeah. an okay thing. You know, the hobo life for some people works really well. How have you managed to work both of those at the same time? Because I see you as a very successful uh, artist, as well as now you've revealed your success <laughs> in business. It's all about what you want from your art. I don't necessarily want to blow up or go viral. I want to go wide. I want to go deep. You know, I want to have a, a really tight group of people who enjoy my work. It's really about your why, making time for what you want to make time for. I, I, I kick myself sometimes too, because I know I'm competing with other artists who are 100% in all the time. They don't have a job right now, or they haven't had a job, and they're full-time artists. They're going to work 10 times harder than I am. I sometimes feel uh, a little bit of imposter syndrome because I'm like, I don't have the same hours to dedicate as some artists do, but whatever you can do, it's spiritual to commune with your thoughts and to, to put things together. And if it's something you enjoy, I think you should make time for it, for your mental health, for your, for your spirit. There's no formula for it, but you make it happen. <laughs> I have a good friend. His name is Paul Devlin, and I bring him up because Paul made the movie called Slam Nation, which is nice. endures to this day with a lot of the original slam poets in, in the movie. And Paul is a, an editor for CBS Sports. So Paul works for CBS and also for other networks as well. And he's a filmmaker 
In addition to Slam Nation, he's made many other movies, all well-recognized, and his movies have gotten a lot of traction. And I, this was maybe three years ago. I was talking to Paul, and we were talking about the same thing you and I are talking about. And I was saying, well, you know, I I, I like the idea of being, you know, living the artist's life. And I, I, I said, but, you know, I think I may have sold myself a little short. I, <laughs> I never really put myself into the work environment. And didn't do it because I resisted it a bit, but I'm beginning to think now, and I was telling Paul this, that I, I maybe have, have lost something because I didn't expose myself on the broader scale. And Paul said, yeah, I kind of have the same idea. He said, I've come up a, a new slogan. And I said, well, what is that, Paul? And he said, keep the day job. <laughs> For sure, man. Being a starting artist is not, is not fun. I can imagine. So, you know, and I think it also, it relieves some stress, having some security, knowing that this could work out, this could not, but I'm going to try anyway. I think that gives you, for me, that gives me some, I have to want to do it. You know, I don't have to do it. I have to want to do it. And if people receive it and appreciate it, then that's affirming and I continue. And if they don't, if I don't share it, it's okay too. But it's really about some discipline. That's the main thing. (laughs) There's another poet who's been on this show. Her name is S. Erin Baptiste, and she goes by S. And she's... Plowing the field as a poet. She's actually working as as a poet. And she also works in the tech industry as well. And so she will tell you, I'm a working poet. And what she means is I also have, have worked job. all my life. Yeah. This job and that job. And and I get up at four o'clock in the morning or I, I put my poetry in and and I I can I put it in with my with my full life. So her response. I'm a working poet means I work and I do all kinds of things to make my life happen. And that includes poetry. Oh, for sure. I want to do that more. I want to continue to like create a, a space incubator for my creativity to come out more. As I continue to get different roles and move up in, in the companies I've been in, you become a little bit more stringent. You become a little bit more um, conservative and how you're being represented, how you're representing yourself, the ideas you have and and what you say, because you're representing a bigger brand, you know? So I do think there is some balance in how much you can say or how much you're comfortable with saying. And even in the diversity and inclusion space in corporate America, I think being your authentic self is the only way to be. Speaking up and everybody has a lot to say, everybody has Twitter now, you know, everybody can have a platform, crafting some work that you feel proud about and that you've taken some time to think about i think it's important so you you make the time put the work in one poem at a time one piece at a time right and so you're helping yourself to climb that executive ladder in the world of poetry as well as climb the executive ladder in the world of work it sounds like yes yes (laughs) to one one day be worthy of my name On that note, do you have some more poetry you could offer us as we move into the last part of this interview? Sure, sure. So this is this piece is called The Day That Time Stood Still. And if I make it through the first round with that poem I just did, this will be my second poem. It was a beautiful, brisk December day. The sunshine seemed to somersault through the shades, making everything feel brighter. Our last moments together, Felt like time walked in and stood still just to take in the room and get a final glimpse of her glow. In seconds, a stomach ache in her made her body tremble like an earthquake 
4.5 on the Richter scale, her womb became more crime scene than ancient tomb. Not a final resting place. This body will have to be removed immediately and she walks around the mall looking for a bathroom like a lost child in a department store in tears, praying she didn't lose the baby, knowing that they could never look for her. She gets home, exhausted, like she'd been swimming against the current, but see, the past needs no life jacket. And it's clear, we weren't floating upstream anymore. Our baby died drowning. And I, the helpless lifeguard stood watching, couldn't be more sure when I heard the final plop on the only pool we have in this house. We couldn't flush the toilet for a while. Folding our fears into fractured fragments forgotten, you'll forever be in our hearts. We flush the fright of this might happen again down with you. Three million cases a year, they say. Maybe you were too good for this world. Maybe you wouldn't have been safe full grown because though we're 13% of the population, they put statistical cases on us before we leave the womb or the courtroom. Casualties of conception and you see that's what they led with firing empty rounds of rationale at us, our logic compromised, our faith fortified. See, I've been on guard about this life since the first test she peed on. He said, yes, you had a miscarriage, a verdict with no court of appeal, hypothyroidism is real and autoimmune disease, they say three million cases a year. As if our community isn't in enough shock from the statistics that never stop because some doctors lose black mothers during labor like black men detained by bad cops, they say miscarriages are common. That's how often grief sneaks up on unsuspecting couples and takes a stab, leaving her leaking. If I've learned anything, it's as men, we can't protect what we can't help. Genes should always be screened. Family history should never be a mystery. Planned Parenthood provided plenty perspective. Get tested. Enjoy the moments just before time walks in and stand still. Rest in peace to every baby that never got to cry and the mothers that they survived by. Thank you ever so much, Press, for that deep and heartfelt, thoughtful piece of poetry. I'm glad you gave us a sense of how you break the elements down earlier in our conversation. In this last piece, not only did you give us the depth, but you allowed us to have that depth within the context of the structural work you applied to prepare the piece. And with that structure, you were able to give us a narrative pull us into the emotional atmosphere of the entire poem and allow us to understand what you were saying in a simple yet complex layered way. Well done. And so that's going to be the second piece you perform in the upcoming Poetry Slam you're competing in if you get through the first round. And with that in mind, how do you feel about competing in the Poetry Slam? So actually, I'd like some feedback on those two. I feel comfortable sharing. I don't mind speaking in front of people and especially because it's on Instagram live. I'm not even, I'm not getting the benefit of having the energy from the audience. I feel like those are two strong pieces that I can get some, some reactions out of and relate to some people. Those are my thoughts. Well, I could give you some feedback. This is a show that is all about creativity. So we could yeah, do that right now if you're interested in it. I, and I, I am. I, I like to 
work with people in this arena because I feel like what we are attempting to do, and I say we, the royal we, that includes anybody who decides they're going to express themselves with some kind of art and then present it in some way to one person or a million. Who knows how many people will be watching this slam. But what I would say for you in both of those pieces, I, I would say that first piece that you did was packed with cultural references, cultural information. It was an activist piece. Now, what you might run into with the five poets that you're working with in this slam, they all know that they have to make the cut. Now, is the cut going from five to two, five to three? What's the cut? I think the first round is the, the top two go on to the semifinals. Okay, so you're going to cut three and take two. Mm-hmm. So the first round means you've got to deliver your piece to the digital space. Yeah. And who knows who's out there, who that, you don't know who's judging, you have no right. idea. And so you have very little control over what happens vibe-wise in the digital space. You have some control over it. Like you have control in respect to how high you have your screen above your eyes so that you want to make sure that your screen is in front of you. And you want to make sure that you're performing for the little lens top of your camera, right? Those those little technical things are, are at play. On that first piece, what I heard was a really good delivery. You have a great understanding of it because you've composed it, you've thought about it, and you know all the nuances that are in it. Now, your job between now and when is the slam? Sunday. Sunday. So your job between now and Sunday is to slow it down a little bit. You might want to run it a hundred times. Yeah. And I would say, do it in front of the camera and get yourself on your own Zoom call and just go over and over and over. If you can, connect as emotionally as possible to each one of those images. Now, the problem that you have, Prez, is one that you can handle. This is an executive problem (laughs) here, is that each one of those images carries tremendous weight, loaded, and it's loaded for you emotionally because you're the author, you've had some of those experiences, and because you're an activist. So you are trying to deliver this message. The disadvantage you have is you're likely to have four other poets that are giving a similar message So, for example, uh, for those of you listening, Prez and I are on a Zoom call, so I can see him as his audience will see him in the the next couple of days. But when you came to the the line about hanging and you held your hand up and then you indicated that you were, were hanging by a rope, I would, as a director, would say, let the words do the work. Rather than indicating the image. And the reason why is because that image has been indicated very, very often on stage when that reference has been made. That's a really powerful image. And so you could make that image work as one of the hinge images in that piece by not so much understating it, but letting the internal experience happen within your voice rather than illustrating it with a physical image. When you did the bird watching 
you held up a pair of binoculars. Again, those of you who are listening wouldn't wouldn't see this, but you held up the pair of binoculars. So, and this is for anybody out there listening to this. This is for all of us, really. When you engage with an image, allow yourself the full engagement of that image. So you go over it in your mind and you live it and you internalize it. So when you finally say it, it almost sounds like it's calm. And yet it's full of power. There's an urgency there. Now, the second one you did, the second one, you have done that one a lot more. You are a lot more familiar with that one. And right away, I could hear in your voice the deep resonance of emotionalism. And so of the two, if you're going to lead with the first one, and in order to make that first one work and compete with other poems that likely will have the same sensibility, because a lot of people are addressing these issues now, you would be well served to try to figure out between now and in the next three days, how to drop in to the more into the emotionalism of it. Mm-hmm. So funny way, the more the deeper you go emotionally, maybe the slower the piece will go, but the pace will pick up emotionally. So what happens often in performance poetry, the, the verbal pace is fast, but the emotional pace is not synchronized with the verbal pace. Mm-hmm. So you want the emotional pace to have the rev and the verbal pace then then can be very slow or fast, either one. Yeah, it's a, I got three minutes, so yeah. it's a long piece. You've got three minutes. And that's another thing that can happen in your three minutes. You may find that you have misjudged it. So since you're on a Zoom call, you might want to have the text in front of you. To have that text there might be a good thing for you. I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah. So those are some notes that that I would give you, but mostly I would go over it and think about each one of those images and think about each one of the characters that you introduce and give them something very specific, characteristic, the way they hold their head, uh, the way their mouth looks, something they might be wearing. And even with the historical people in your piece, the, the people that you reference, I would look at their pictures. I would study the picture. You may have already done that. Find a video of them. You do that. And then you walk into the show with all of that background. You will undo yourself and yet you'll still hold the piece together because you're a professional. Right. And in a way that's acting. You know, the actor gets undone, but the actor also knows how to hold it together. Right. So do you have any questions i mean we're on we're gonna air this so this is like a little lesson here man no for sure man i appreciate the feedback um hopefully i win uh with with, with what the first one so i can move on to the second one um, yeah man i think the the emotionality is definitely a key that i've been trying to master and you know it's funny so there's a term like do you know it in your bones like do you know the poem in your bones yeah. and i'm definitely not there with those two uh, the second one i do know a little bit more like to your point i do feel more comfortable with that one this you know just the, the imagery and the topics are sometimes a little bit like they're very close, you know, so like separating the artist, separating the piece from the, thyself is very uh, it's intricate, it's intricate uh, un- unraveling. But yeah, man, I mean, thank you. Thank you for the feedback. And eventually, sooner than later, given the work that you're putting into this, people will start saying that's art because that's what makes, in my mind, art happen. You just do the work. 
and then something emerges from it. From that, exactly. Do you have a poem you could close with? Um, sure. Let me see what I have here. Do you have any uh, any themes? No, just pick one. We're almost to the end of the show, so something just to just to ease us out. All right. Let me uh, let me pick one. Let me pick one. <laughs> I have a persona piece. Okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay. I was a gift from a thoughtful daughter. All 12 years with this family have been some of the most meaningful of my existence. I have my own special spot upon Big Mama's mantle, right next to Jesus, and the pictures of all the children and their children. Oh, how they've grown so fast. And as they have, Big Mama's gotten older, moves a little slower, and needs an oxygen tank because of all those years of smoking, costing her a lot. I'm afraid she won't have much time left with us. And like those toys on Toy Story, I'll be packed away, forgotten, forever. Though all the while, I've been unequivocally by her side, getting her through those rough times every time she turns on the television and loses hope. She looks up at me, gives me a tap on the head, and I bobble and smile, returning a smile to her face. She calls me Barry, and... Before cancer took pop-up, we had some great Christmases, Thanksgivings, Bible study sessions, always a full house. And I look after her now. When everyone leaves, watching her, noticing the fatigue, the cough, the night sweats, she needs to go to the doctor. But she doesn't trust them, see? She doesn't trust the hospitals since they let her husband die. She swears they didn't try. And I sit silently with her as she cries. And we flip through the photo album of their wedding day, tears diving off her eyelids, creating pools of smudged ink against the pages. She laughs, <laughs> tickled by the memories of the days when she was just a girl. She talks to me more these days because her family stays away to protect her from the virus. You see, she's vulnerable and the joy and fullness of our home has truly been missed. So I smile and bobble, giving her the company she so desperately needs for as long as I can. For as long as she can hold on, we sing. Amazing grace. Until she's called home. And what do you know? I'm giving a new mantle with a picture of Big Mama right next to me, right by my side. And that's that piece. So yeah, that that piece came from um, doing a persona piece and just picking an inanimate object and, and giving it a, a character. So I thought about what someone in COVID would feel like being alone in their house, being a Democrat myself, and thinking about you know what what Democratic leaders have meant to certain parties and certain people, and having that grandmother who had like a calendar of Barack Obama on her, on her wall. Um, I just thought of a bobblehead as something I could kind of perform with and use as a, as a, as a reference point to bobble and, and mention in the piece and what they would see, right. Or how, how they would feel in that home, you know, now that it's been kind of left and, and hopefully that came through. <laughs> it came through very well. I don't know if I were wanted to encourage you to take a risk. That would also be a, well 
well done slam piece. People you would be so? surprised to see that. I don't want to give you the advice. Yeah, no, no, I mean, because I don't know you. Now they told me to do that. No, like, <laughs> no, it's all good, man. I mean, <laughs> it's, again, it's just it's, it's for it's cathartic, right? It's a performance. It's, it's for it's for others, you know. So um, that was a piece where I was kind of being a little silly, right? Uh, doing an impersonation, you know, doing a persona piece about a bobblehead, right? Like we don't. I see them sometimes in people's cars and stuff like that. So uh, yep. you know what. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Well, Press, thank you ever so much for taking the time out of your busy life to spend this time with us. I really, really do appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. And um, maybe we'll do it again sometime soon. Definitely, Abe. All right, man. So there you go, my friends, a conversation with Poetic Prez. And I hadn't really expected to go into a directorial actor workshop with Prez, and yet we did that. So I hope that when you were listening to the conversation we had, that back and forth exchange, I hope maybe you were able to glean a bit for yourself out of of how you can also work with your own work and bring it up to a level that will engage not only you as you perform it, also will engage your audience. So I wanted just to encourage you to think about performing your own work. I have written a little book titled How to Read Your Work in Public, and I'm using the word read to cover the entire ground of all kinds of performances. The main point in the book, How to Read for an Audience, is this. Be yourself. It's likely that you've heard some performance poets read their work. Maybe some page poets read their work at an open mic as well. And a lot of the people do a really, really great job of simply communicating their message to the audience in a heartfelt, emotionally connected way that's not really overdone, and yet it does have some pop. On the other hand, you've probably been to some readings where you had the opposite experience. The person reading was really boring. They weren't engaging emotionally. They weren't inviting the audience to be part of their experience. And they weren't asking themselves to be part of the audience's experience. So in those kind of readings, I've often sat, and I will applaud after the poet or the writer leaves the stage, thinking, well, why didn't they give over to the moment, what was holding them back. And I think what actually was holding them back, and this is a speculation on my part, I think people just really haven't taken the time to give it all that much thought. As Prez and I did, we really discussed a good deal in this interview back and forth about how to how to access the emotional interior and what i mean by the emotional interior if you write a paragraph about someone dear to you and the paragraph likely will have a lot of pop and people will enjoy reading it because you're emotionally attached to the person you're dear to if you stand up and you read that piece with a flat monotone voice it's very likely you will lose the attention of some of the members of the audience. Turning that around, if you would like to engage 
you're reading with a dynamic, emotionally connected voice, sparkly eyes and a smile on your face, then the best way to do that is to spend some time, like present I did, going back and forth, imagining deeply into each image, sometimes each word, so that when you finally get to the point where you read it out loud to your audience, you are having an emotionally charged narrative experience that has lots of subtext and lots of layers involved as you just simply read the work. And you really don't have to overplay it. You can play it normal, like you were just having a conversation with somebody. And what will happen when you are relaxed and playing it normal, all of the layers of emotionalism will start to emerge, the imagery will start to emerge, and you will be able to present something that sounds like a normal conversation, and yet it has all kinds of variables and ups and downs and tonal changes with very little effort on your part. And the second note, besides be yourself, is to rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. I mentioned to press, run the piece a hundred times, go over it and over it and over it, and at some point it will start to feel like it belongs inside your skin and belongs inside your eyes, inside your, your throat, your voice coming out. And you might be wondering, how will I know when that happens? And what I'm here to say is, you will know it when it happens. And how you make it happen is be yourself and go over and over and over your material until you just start to feel that emerge, just in the way that you know your garden is ready for harvest. Somehow it comes out slowly, and when it does, it's really rather abundant. So on that note, I would like to say thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, Fertile Ground for Conversations Worth Listening to and Remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting this show first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI-FM, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico, I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you would like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com, that's my website. You can email me through my website. I'll be glad to give you some more tips on how to how to present your work. I love to talk to people about that. Find out how you do it. Tell me what's up in your life. JamesNave.com. And I'd like to thank Devin Dial for managing WPVMFM. We wouldn't be able to put all these shows together and disseminate them throughout the world if Devin didn't help us all hold the ship down, the mothership, if you will. WPVMFM.org if you're interested in learning more about that. And thank you out there listening ever so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. And I do hope you tune in again next week. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.